We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hi, friends. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show all about diving into the mess, the gray, the tense, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers, maybe sometimes not answers at all. Stuff's not always black and white. Doesn't always tie up with a nice bow, and we want to lean in rather than shy away from that and uh, create space for you to do that as well. We'd love to engage with you in whatever way you want to engage. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there. Plus, as an added bonus, the show is podcasted. So literally, whatever device you use to listen to podcasts, I guarantee you it's there. So you can find us in any of those ways, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, Brian... Today's been a uh, weird day already, um, and I feel like just looking at the news, and we're looking at a screen and our laptops, there's all sorts of stuff all over the place, all the time it seems, yes. and one of the stories that uh, continues to kind of unfold here a little bit is the uh, the Jesse Smollett story. Yeah. Um, if you remember, there's a there was some claims that in January, I think it was January 29th, um, that he was attacked on his way back from picking up some sandwiches. Uh, guys in masks, you know, yelling homophobic, racist slurs. Um, there was something involving like a like a noose. I think. Yeah, I think he literally went to the hospital. When he went to the hospital, he still had the noose around his neck. Oh, no kidding! Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, so so that was that. Obviously, and we. Um, I mean, I remember reading about that the day after, thinking like, what What in the world is happening? Right. right. Well, since then, there's been like this trickle of information that is is now at least alluding to the possibility. That it was like some kind of hoax that the details uh, aren't being corroborated. And the police department has been very clear that, like, we're not making any official statements either way just yet. Um, But there's this weird kind of veil of suspicion now. And I don't (laughs) – I think you're doing a good job of trying to be careful about it. I think the momentum is pretty hard on the fact that that this story didn't happen. Really? And it's moving hard that way. And if it took another turn, I think it would be surprising. But – um, yeah, because from the beginning, there were interesting things about it. Like, remember, right. it was, that was the week it was like negative 20 degrees outside. Right, right. And, and uh, it seemed really convenient that they targeted him randomly at 2 in the morning. Like, there were things that weren't adding up. Um, just a strange story. Just a strange story all around. I, I wonder, like, what, what it must be like to be uh, on the investigative team. Because I feel like there's... Every single day, there's a new little bit of information, and it feels so hard to, like, cut through the noise of, <clears throat> excuse me, like, I feel like I hear people on both sides, yep. like, yell, you know, like, like Jesse's made a couple of statements, um, 
just regards to how frustrated he is that people are doubting his story right. and, and people are, you know, kind of like doubling down on that end. And then other, you know, people on the other side are saying, well, if you we don't have the facts like that, that's what this country is about is like, you know, getting getting to the facts, yep. finding out the truth of the story and why are we jumping to conclusions and why are we not? But then it, it just feels like it ping pongs back and forth. Yep. And it, this is a lot of our heartbeat for the show. Right. When we see things like this happen. And we just watch the chasm, yes, like wide and more and more. And we people aren't listening to each other, and people are making assumptions about the other side. And I don't know. It made, it made me think about like <clears throat> why why is it so unpopular at times to actually hit pause and say, "Well, let's find out the yep. facts." Like yep. I don't even understand why that's a controversial thing to say. Yeah, it was really interesting. I watched. I was watching yeah. something on the news about this last night, and they had a an investigator. Um, a guy who's been in the FBI and all this stuff. And he, I, I learned something interesting. He said exactly what you're bringing up about the police. He said generally in situations like this, uh, the police will literally run dual investigations at mm. the same time. One mm. of them saying uh, one of the investigations or one of the uh, pathways says we believe everything you're saying. Yeah. And we're going to treat this investigation like you're telling 100% the truth. And we're going to investigate it in that way. While at the same time, Another stream of the investigation saying we're going to doubt everything you're saying. Right. And basically they're going to go down both these pathways and see which one, you know, kind of wins out. Right, which one. right, right. Uh, and right now I think in the beginning the we believe everything, they had no reason for that one not to be winning out. And the more they're investigating, it appears from all the sources coming out. You and I were talking about a CNN article where it talks about two law enforcement, two law enforcement sources with knowledge of the investigation – Tell CNN that Chicago police now believe that the actor paid two men to orchestrate an assault on him that he reported late last night or late last month. And so um, basically, I think these two streams are going and the one in the camp of we're investigating that you made this up is is really winning out, which then raises all sorts of questions. Right. right. It raises the questions of the way the media jumped on it, right. the way politicians jumped on it. Um, and what does it say about our culture? What does it say about us as a people? Um, and just like you said, people are it's causing people to run to their, see, this is what I said. It's yeah, the, the right, liberal right, right. bias media is always bad and always trying to get you know, the conservatives. And the other people go, well, no, we were just reporting what we were being told. And everyone's kind of trying to go. And um, it's I, in the end, the more I think about this story, the more I just, to be honest with you, I'm saddened that there's a guy for whatever reason he did it for would go to this lengths to make something up. Presumably, and, and, and if up. he didn't, like just to go on record, if he yep. didn't, this is absolutely horrifically evil at its at its absolute core. Like absolutely. that, like that, that I think is it's insane that I have to even say that. I guess, but like, if these attacks were legitimate, then like I think you and I both would agree we condemn them in every single possible right. sense of the word. Uh, and and even in that caveat, I feel it's frustrating that I. It feels like our our hearts have to be divided now when we hear anybody say anything. Like yeah. it it does become a lot about um, you know saving face or maintaining a base or like you know it's a lot. It's unfortunately stuff is often about clicks. Uh, it's about traffic and you know headlines and stories that'll like do a service to our site or our company or our organization. Like I think it's why there's this constant temptation to jump on a story prematurely because it's less about it being right and more about it being first. Yep. And that's a really, really dangerous precedent to set, yep. I think, because 
like you and I have talked about, even just anecdotally as as people, people I've seen people all the time. They'll share a story on Facebook and say, "I haven't read this yet. I'm saving it for later." Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and I'm like, there are other ways to save stories. <laughs> like you're just flinging stuff. You haven't done the research. Yeah. And I've seen other people try to engage in that conversation. Yep. You know, in the comments section, like, "Hey, have you actually read the details of this?" And they're like, "No, no, no. I just I'll read it later." And I'm like, "What? Can we be a little more responsible yep. in how we engage with this content and how we expect other people to?" To, to carry conversations in a way that are is patient, but also, like, again, if this is legitimate, to go after it with vigor. To say, okay, this is absolutely yep. wrong. we got to go after this. Um, but to say, let's get the facts first, it isn't – that's not laziness either, though. It's not, it's not in any way approving of these actions. It's just saying we should do the due diligence of finding out the facts. Yeah, it feels like everyone wants to jump to – beyond the getting up of the facts and instead getting to the commentary of it and what's it say about our culture. Right. And, uh, you know, the the one side is saying this is just, you know, this is emblematic of the culture that Donald Trump has made. And right. the other side go, well, this is uh, this is emblematic of everything about what's wrong with our media, as opposed to everyone taking a deep breath, being like, let's first find out uh, right. if this story, two politicians, two Democrats who are running for president, both within 24 hours of the story coming out, called it a modern-day lynching. Like, that's a really big word to use. Yes, right. That now is just huge egg on your face if any of this is true, that that this isn't the way it played out. Uh, I think the greatest tell in this whole story is, like, let's just be people who start uh, trying to get to the truth of things and understand what happened before making commentary on everything and jumping in and throwing things at the other side. Not everything's a weapon to be used against the other side. That's right. I think that's a good challenge, too. Let's let's be a people who try to get to the truth of things, whether it's national news yep. or just interpersonal interactions. Let's be a people that have the patience and the courage to go after the truth at all costs. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to interview... <coughs> You're losing me. your voice, Gee, Holy cow, coming up next, <laughs> Ian's going to die. Uh, <laughs> coming up next, we're going to interview Jack Graham about his fascinating new book about angels. You're not going to miss it. That's here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, friends. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. The Common Good's a show all about diving into the mess, the gray, the tense, and also the stuff that... We don't have easy answers for because I think if we're honest, that's where a lot of us live. We have questions about stuff, and I think that is kind of part of the common nature of the show is that oftentimes these things that we have questions about, we never actually articulate. And I think we'd be encouraged to know how many people have the same questions. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, plus you can go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there, and uh, the show is podcasted as well on whatever platform you desire. And uh, we have a very special guest today. It's Pastor Jack Graham. And I want to read you just a little bit of his bio because uh, it is impressive. Pastor Jack Graham is the pastor of Prestonwood Baptist Church, one of the nation's largest, most dynamic congregations. Graham is uh, 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 is a noted author of numerous books, including Man of God, Unseen, and a new book, Angels, Who They Are, What They Do, and Why It Matters, will be published soon. His passionate biblical teaching is also seen and heard across the country and throughout the world on PowerPoint ministries. Through broadcast, online sermons, and email messages, Dr. Graham addresses relevant everyday issues that are prevalent in our culture and that strike a chord with audiences worldwide. Pastor Graham, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, my pleasure. Glad to do it. Great. So you've written this book about angels, and uh, I don't know that there is, there's very few topics more polarizing than the issue of the supernatural. I think it's something that, whether you're a church person or not, uh, you've at some point in your life grappled with. And I'm just curious, why a book about angels? What kind of piqued your interest with this particular subject matter? 
It actually flowed out of of a book that I wrote previous uh, called Unseen, which is about the unseen, invisible world, uh, the realities, spiritual realities that are all around us that we cannot see. I brought a message yesterday to our congregation on faith, and it speaks of, you know, we walk by faith, not sight. And Mm. so the whole faith life for all of us engages an unseen world. I mean, we've never seen God. We've never seen Jesus. There are a lot of things that we've never seen, but we believe based on uh, the teaching, the truth of God's word. So uh, in that book on unseen, where I talked about heaven and hell and talked about the soul, I mean, we've never seen a soul, for example, but Jesus talks. And and out of that, I wrote a chapter on angels. Hmm. And uh, there was so much interest uh, that uh, the publisher came to me and said, "Would you do a book on angels?" And I said, "Absolutely not." <laughs> they said, "Why not?" Well, I don't want to. I, I don't want to be. There's so much. It seems like a fringe topic. It, yeah. uh, mm. you know, there's a lot of craziness uh, out there regarding angels. What people say, what people think, what some people write. And I said, I, I really don't want to be known as the angel guy. And, <laughs> and, and he he uh, he really challenged me to reconsider that. So, uh, and actually, there his wife was dying of cancer at the time, mm. and has since gone on to heaven. And she looked at me in a conversation regarding the whole angel idea book idea, and said, "I'm getting ready to go see." the Lord. I'm going to be with the angels. I'd like to know more Mm, (laughs) about the angels. And so when you, I said, oh, if you put it that way, then I guess I need (laughs) to take a look. And so I actually got my trusty pen and yellow pad and I started writing references from scripture on angels. And I discovered that that angels are present from Genesis to Revelation uh, throughout the Bible. And uh, they're over you know, 300 references to angels in the Bible. And I realized, though I'd I'd spoken about angels before, talked about them, believed that they existed. I'd never taken angels as a topic seriously myself. Hmm. And yet when I, when I read the scriptures, you can't, you can't miss the angels. They're everywhere. Hmm. Uh, And uh, especially in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so I came back and said, okay, I'll do it. So it was kind of, uh, with you know, I resisted, but now, but but since I wrote the book, now I'm fired up about it. Now mm. I'm excited about the topic because truly, I believe angels have a significant and strategic role in the life of believers, in the life of history, both past and present and future history, and the unseen supernatural world all around us includes these heavenly warriors, these powerful witnesses, uh, and uh, these these wonderful worshipers that this moment 24-7 are around the throne of God uh, saying hallelujah and amen and worshiping God, holy, holy, holy. So mm-hmm. it's an important topic. I wanted to address some of the misstatements uh, and myths regarding angels that are in the culture and, and sometimes within the church, and so that's why I wrote the book. Well, let's go down that road of the uh, kind of the misconceptions, not just in culture, but like you already pointed out, in the church. What do you think some of those biggest misconceptions are about angels? Yeah, we actually went on the street, did some uh, on-the-street interviews with people just randomly. Some were believers and some were not believers, and uh, there's a lot of crazy ideas about <laughs> the, out there about angels. And, you know, one, for example, is uh, many people believe when a child dies, a baby child uh, dies, they become a cherub or an angel, mm. or that people, when they die, become uh, angels, uh, my angel in heaven. Uh, the other idea, of course, that is a misconception is uh, that angels are uh, 
that that uh, that angels are soft and cuddly. Mm. Um, that uh, you know most of the photo, not in photos, but most of the drawings you see of angels are rather feminine in nature and soft, and they like you know you want to cuddle up with your angel baby, <laughs> and uh, and and so there's a lot of softness, and yet when you read the Bible, you find out that angels are actually powerful warriors. Mm. And uh, mighty, you know, when when the Bible speaks of the Lord of angel armies, uh, that song by Chris Tomlin, when it speaks of the Lord of hosts, that means the Lord of angel armies. And these angels are doing significant spiritual battle in the heavenly spiritual realm. And and so, uh, you know, we we tried to identify the real role of angels. Uh, We say they are worshipers. First and foremost, the angels are not about themselves. They've never been about themselves. They're like Navy SEALs who get in and get the job done undercover. And so angels operate. uh, They point people to Jesus. The whole goal is not to get to know angels better, but to get to know Jesus better and the worship of the angels. And then, uh, yeah, and if you if you study the angels, you you see the greatness of God, not the greatness of the angels. But you see the greatness and the glory of God because they're worshipers and they prompt us. Uh, to be worshipers. And uh, then these are witnesses. The very word angel means is angelos in the New Testament. It means messenger. Hmm. So angels come with with messages often sent by God in the scriptures with with messages like the announcement of the birth of Christ and and uh, and uh, announcements. Often they come with announcements of judgment, Hmm. especially in the book of Revelation. Um, and so they, they are messengers and that relates to us because angels must, uh, you know, I say must fold their wings because they wonder why we're not getting the job done. They don't, they can't witness of the gospel as we are called as Christians to witness of the gospel, but they are messengers and they're, they're early and eager in flight and in ministry to deliver that message. And, uh, then they're warriors fighting, uh, the spiritual realm for us, protecting us. Uh, and angels are all around believers. Another thing about angels that I'm, is a myth or a misconception is that angels are for everyone. Mm. Everyone, you know, thinks I've got an angel or who may believe in the supernatural. But angels, definitely according to Scripture, are given to those who quote inherit salvation. That's Hebrews chapter one. That is believers. So there's no suggestion in the Bible that angels have any ministry to unbelievers, non-believers, but rather this is a role they play. Uh, at, at, the, at the bequest of God to serve God's people mm. as they serve God. So, you know, you can't, if you're, if you're a non-believer, you can't expect your angel, you know, to, to get you out of trouble or to do anything for you because it's a promise to believers. So yep. that's just a few of them. That's fascinating. I, I'm curious, though, why, why do you think that people are so fascinated in the topic of angels? I think people, even if they're not interested in Jesus or the Bible or God or church or any of that, there seems to be sort of this universal, at least curiosity, about angels and the supernatural. Why, why do you think that is? Well, it's, it's kind of a both and. Uh, in, in one way, as a pastor, I, I see so many people distant, disinterested in the supernatural, especially secular people, people mm. who are you know, all caught up in the culture. And you know, they never think of the supernatural, don't even realize that it may exist. And if it does, it doesn't have anything to do with us. I say there's a paper-thin, tissue-thin veil between here and eternity, between yep. what's on earth and what's in eternity, and that heaven is closer than you could possibly imagine, and and so on. Uh, but the secular mind, you know, will have none of that, and, and they see this as a mockery, as myths. And you look at medi- medieval uh, 
you know, descriptions of angels and you see the wings and, and, and the, you know, the strange looking caricatures of angels. Mm -hmm. And so people have written that off. But on the other hand, uh, if you are a believer or if you have some spiritual interest, even in the new age movement of several years ago, which you don't hear that much about anymore, I guess it's under underground, it went away, whatever. But in the new age movement, uh, there was a lot of interest in angels, as there was in the book of Colossians, uh, in in some of the uh, the strange doctrines of, of the first century, there was new age theology and so on. And, the, and so, you know, there's always been this interest in the supernatural among those who are, quote, quote spiritual. And I rather think for some people, uh, angels is a kinder, gentler version of God. Mm, <laughs> uh, you know what? I mean, I, well, yeah. they don't want to deal with a holy God, but, you know, I've got a friendly angel <laughs> uh, uh, who's on my side. You know, I've got an angel named Joe who's going to take care of me. <laughs> and, and, and that's another myth. Uh, but uh, and, then, and then you've got, you know, kind of a fringe approach to angels where people are seeing angels and reported seeing angels. And, you know, I say in the book, you know, I may or may not have encountered physically angels in my lifetime. I, I frankly think I have, but I don't believe in angels because I've seen an angel. I believe in angels because God's word clearly tells us that angels are all around us everywhere, that God has commissioned angels to to serve him and to serve believers. Well, Pastor Graham, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. You've been listening to Pastor Graham, author of Angels, Who They Are, What They Do, and Why It Matters. So grateful for you taking the time to join us today. Thank you for sharing your insights. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You can learn more at jackgram.org. You can also find Jack Graham uh, on Twitter at handle Jack and Graham. Uh, You can also listen to PowerPoint Ministries Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 6.30, right here on AM 1160. We also have a contest going on right now. This contest ends uh, March 1st, you can enter at 1160hope.com slash angels, and literally everyone who enters will receive two free sermons from Pastor Graham's Angels in the Universe, and uh, the Graham Prize is valued at more than $200. It includes the book Unseen that he mentioned, uh, the book about angels that he mentioned, the Angels DVD series from Pastor Graham, and uh, an Amazon Echo Plus smart speaker. So you can enter to win all of that uh, at 1160hope.com slash angels. So coming up next on The Common Good, we're going to talk about Sabbath and how to actually take a day off. How do we actually do this thing that we know that we're supposed to do, but very few of us actually ever do. So that's coming up next on The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, friends. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, a show all about the mess, the gray, the tense, the stuff without easy answers, the stuff that doesn't tie up with a nice bow, hopefully encouraging Leaning into conversations rather than shying away from them, critical thought, seeing the best in others when that's hard to do. I think, you know, in echo chambers and confirmation biases, it's hard for us to see someone else's opinion, but we want to kind of create space for that and hopefully engage in stuff that at some level all of us have thought or felt or wrestled with. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there, plus plus we're podcasted. So uh, literally whatever platform you desire We'll be there. We'll even come to your house. We'll talk to you for a little bit we'll if you even want. Come to your house. <laughs> oh gosh, I don't think anybody wants that. No, <laughs> not even my wife. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a theme that kind of shows up uh, frequently for you and I, and I don't know if this is like some sort of subtext, uh, is rest, is Sabbath. This idea of like always being on, always feeling like we need to be somewhere or do something, and like the the subtext even of that is that we often kind of wrap our identity up in like what we do or what we can accomplish, which. 
my guess is a lot of people have wrestled with, maybe not articulating it that way, but how do you actually like unplug? How do you truly right. rest? Not just for like a half hour, but, you know, Scripture speaks to taking a Sabbath, this yes. rhythm that we're built for um, that is usually the first thing to go, right? Like, oh, yeah. that was more of a suggestion, or that's not really important in the New Covenant, or, you know, rest if you have time for Like, I remember doing a sermon on rest once, and this guy came up to me afterwards, and he said, you know, it's nice that Jesus had that kind of free time, but I have a company to run. <laughs> and I was like, man, if you're at a point where you think that your company is more important than the ministry of Jesus, yep. you, might, <laughs> you might need to reevaluate some Did things. You say, Tell me more about that company of yours. <laughs> yeah, right, right. No kidding. But I'm always interested in, like, really practical ideas, yep. you know, because sometimes Sabbath and rest can feel really nebulous and ethereal, like, okay, how do I actually do that? And I, uh, I came across this list that I'd love to kind of just walk down a little bit that I think gives some really practical suggestions, whether you're a pastor or um, regardless of your work stage or your life stage, they're just good suggestions, I think. I think something important, because you just mentioned it, whether you're a pastor or not, is that I, what, something I have found in the churches that I've been a part of is that when I talk about Sabbath and rest and disconnecting, people are like, well, that's good for you, the yeah, pastor. Right. Like it's something that either I have the bandwidth or the space for, or like, you know, my job is more holy, so you need the bigger recharge. And, and one of the struggles has been to help everyday businessmen or stay-at-home mom or whatever else or businesswoman and stay-at-home dad, whatever yep. it might be. Totally. To see me get away from the uh, stereotypes there. That was I, smart. I, I, I smart man. <laughs> smart man. Is to help people understand, no, no, this is for everybody. Yes. This is a call on everybody's life. Totally. And it's a gift, uh, not a burden. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing that's always kind of surprising to me is that, like, in the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel are commanded to celebrate in certain ways and to rest in certain ways. And it's this really recognizable pattern that you work, and then you pause, you rest, and you celebrate. Work, rest, mm. and pause. If you don't, uh, I'll kill you. Like, <laughs> like it's really aggressive language in the Old Testament that I feel like we sometimes don't we don't necessarily speak of it with yeah. that level of intensity. Like, yeah. no, rest is not just a suggestion. Like you said, it's a gift. It's also a yeah. command. Like, it is. we go to crazy places when we don't take the time to do these things. And I think, once again, God's aware of how we're wired. And at least for me. When I'm not resting, when I'm not Sabbathing, man, I, I go to places of, of guilt or insecurity or yes. restlessness that I know is not resting in the full identity that God's made me in. Yep, and it's interesting. Jesus clearly says, right, like he tries to remove the Sabbath from the legalism, yeah, which right. would became more stressful than the right, resting. Right, right. But Jesus never says, hey, I'm going to do away with the Sabbath. Work a lot. Yep. Right? He No, no. Jesus models rest. He commands rest. Yes. He encourages rest. Like, however you want to say it, Jesus does it. And so to try to say, you know what, Jesus, no way. He got us away from the Old Testament. We don't have to do that. Mm. I would say, yeah, you don't have to do it. But Jesus, uh, he modeled it, and he said do it. So I guess we do have to do it. It is a point of obedience. At the same time, it's a gift. Like, we would be foolish to be like, well, Jesus didn't know better. He didn't understand 21st right. century running <laughs> running crazy. Right. Like. Uh, it's a height of arrogance to say, I don't need to rest, but Jesus maybe did. But instead, it's an embracing obediently going, wow, Jesus kind of laid something out here for me that is for my benefit and is a gift and helps me understand him better. Well, and he does it, too, when it's not always convenient, right? Like right. the gospel writers a couple of times record there were still sick people. In fact, they were begging him, please stay yes. one day longer. And he said, I got to be about my father's work. Like, I, I really resonate with it. You don't stop because you finally answered all your emails. Right. Like. You stop because it's time to stop. Yep. Because you're you're not present with your family. You're not being honorable to your body, to your soul. Like yep. he leaves when there's still quote unquote work to be done. And I think, man, 
to our modern sensibilities, that's really, really convicting. Yeah, and I think one thing that makes it really difficult nowadays is that there are still jobs that exist that are very nine to five, like the bell yeah. rings at five, but not a lot of them. Totally. Not like, you know, back in the day, like generation or two ago, where most jobs functioned that way. Yeah. Uh, nowadays, because of our smartphones and because of just the way that our culture works, you have to you have to actively remove yourself and unplug. Yeah. And um, I don't think a lot of us are good at that. So I once I remember telling someone, I kind of sometimes wish I had a job that was like on a street crew that it ended at five and you can't take that work home with you. Right. Uh, but most of us have jobs that you could take home with you. Yep. Uh, and then about. you've got stress at home yep. and all these other things. And if you think, oh, I'll just kind of. Um, I'll stumble into rest. You'll know ne- it'll never happen. Totally. All right. So this is 12 ways to take a day off. Uh, if you're not driving, maybe encourage you to get out a pen and paper, right? These, these are really yep. practical, really simple, easy ways to unplug, to recharge a little bit. Uh, number one, uh, tweet less or not at all. Mm-hmm. I'd go with not at all. Yep. Just, just kind of the second one is like it. Uh, number two, don't look at your Facebook Facebook inbox, I would say, or at all. At all. I think with these first two, what I would want to highlight when it comes to Sabbath is Sabbath is about what you don't do, and it's also about what you do. Yes, right. It, you have to unplug and then replug into something else. Totally. And I think this whole social media thing, I do not think you can have Sabbath while remaining plugged in uh, deeply into the social media. I definitely can't. I'm I totally can't right. Either. The question I that I always either. ask when it comes to Sabbath is, is this stirring my affections for Christ? Good. And that'll look different for different people. Yep. Uh, number three, go on a date with your spouse. If you're married, go on yep. a date with your spouse. Yep. It's going to be another. I think that's a great idea. Number four, go outside and take a walk. The sun will recharge our bodies more than we think. Uh, sure. That's not always possible in sure. Chicagoland in January or February. But number five, unless it's family or one of your close friends, do not answer your phone. Voicemail is a great screening tool. Is this right? Amen. Is this right? <laughs> yell, Amen. Amen. I mean, I hardly answer my phone anyway. It just goes to voicemail. Yep. Uh, I love number six. Don't drink cheap coffee. Make the investment on your Sabbath to get some good quality, locally sourced, fair trade, organic coffee. <laughs> or unsweetened iced tea on my That's right. My you don't head. drink coffee at all. I forgot. That's right. Number seven, talk about anything but work stuff. Note to pastors, church stuff is work stuff. <laughs> 100%. That's hard. That's why it's hard to do. So this summer I told you I was on sabbatical. Yep. Uh, and the person will remain nameless. But I went to a to a person close to me and I said, listen. For the next three months or two months, I need you not to talk about church stuff. Oh, that's good. Like, I want to spend, I'll spend time with you. I, I need you not to bring Just it preempted, up. though. Like, hey, this yeah. is a thing I'm trying to be intentional about, which yeah. is hard because for us, church stuff is also like our friend stuff. Exactly. It's exactly. like the thing we're passionate about. It's not just work. It's like, it's a lot of who we are. Yep. Uh, number eight, I've never heard this one. I love it. <laughs> wear clothes you would never wear to work. I have an awful set of T-shirts I wear on my day off. That's awesome. I usually wear just dark blue sweatpants that my wife <laughs> yeah. is like, how long are you going to wear those for? <laughs> right. Right, till they fall off my body, right? Number nine, do something that makes you smile or laugh. If nothing comes to mind, read something from Dave Barry. I, uh, I think to me that's like this childlike wonder, like allow yourself to just belly laugh yes. or smile. Like we spend so little time doing things that make us smile because our like, nose is to the grindstone. Do something. Maybe it's something that you did as a kid yep. that made you smile. Maybe that's the way to tackle that. Number 10, spend some time reading the Bible. If you're a pastor or teacher, do not read the text you plan to teach on Sunday. Read for yourself today and not for others. That's a really convicting one, right? Like you're not prepping for anything. You're not studying. Just just read to soak in it a little bit. Number 11, hit yourself on the kneecap with a hammer each time you read an email from your work. (laughs) Uh, uh, uh. After a couple of emails, you will be forced to lie down and rest. That's good. (laughs) That is good. Hit your knee. Hit your kneecap with a hammer. Yep. Boy, oh boy. And then last but not least, number 12, spend some time completely alone. 
Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed, and we should too. That mm. one's hard for both of us to do, Very I think, hard. to Very just hard. simply be still and be alone. But hopefully one of those 12 was uh, encouraging or convicting. Don't try and do all 12, right. but certainly pick out one or two. Take steps to make Sabbath yes. a regular rhythm of your life. Totally, totally. Well, coming up next, Phil Robertson wrote the book, The Theft of America's Soul, and uh, we have an interview with him right here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, friends. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show all about diving into the gray, the mess, the tense, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers and doesn't tie up with a nice bow, because... If we're honest, I think that's where most of us live most of the time. We'd love to interact with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com, and all the previous shows are there. And we're podcasted as well. So literally whatever platform or device you want to use, you can find the podcast there. And it's an added bonus. I'm learning people are listening to us at twice the speed. So sure. <laughs> you can get, works. get through the show twice as fast. We have a, a very special guest today, Phil Robertson. Thank you so much for joining us today, sir. Hey, good to be here. Phil Robertson, if you don't know, is the founder and co-owner of the Duck Commander Company, a professional hunter, successful businessman, the popular star of A&E's reality television series Duck Dynasty. He's also the host of a new television series, In the Woods, with Phil on CRTV.com. He authored two New York Times bestselling books, Happy, 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 and Unfiltered. He and his wife, Kay, live in West Monroe, Louisiana. and to, uh, Together, they have four grown sons and daughter-in-law, 21 grandchildren, and six wow. great-grandchildren. You can find out more at duckcommander.com. Phil, uh, so grateful for you joining us today. And I, uh, I, I think you have a, a lot of really fascinating things to say about the world and culture and society. Um, and, and I think you surprise people on the right and the left, regardless of, uh, of who you're talking about or what you're talking about. And in, in The Theft of America's Soul, um, you address 10 of the most harmful lies that American people can embrace. Can, can you just talk to us a little bit about that idea and some of those lies? Well, what, what got me thinking about this, and I never thought I would write a book about it, but <laughs> I, I just started looking at these warnings, admonitions and such from the scriptures of 2,000 years ago. The New Testament was written 2,000 years ago in the first century. The Apostle Paul, talking to the Roman Empire, and it's amazing, just watch how pertinent what he said to them is today, 2,000 years later, when you start talking about the Bible being timeless. He said, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gives them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Mm. And he has a list. And he starts down that list, murders in there, strife, envy, they're inventing ways of doing evil. And he ends it up by saying they are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Mm. Well, if you look at that and you say, I'm looking at America, and the look, guys, I have never heard listen to this many lies mm. as I'm seeing coming out of the news media and all across America. I've never seen lying on the scale that it's being done now. Mm. Have y'all? No, I don't think so. It, it's amazing to watch. Therefore, I wrote a book about it. I'm just trying to get America to say, you know, if we're going to make America great again, I think we're going to make America more godly than it is now. Mm. I'm trying to get them to love God and love their neighbor, and it's like pulling teeth 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of the lies you bring up, I, it's the third one you bring up about that I'm interested to hear you talk more about is you said the lie is that truth is relative, and the truth is that there is absolute truth and it comes from God. Uh, those are those are two biggies, I think, in our culture. Could you unpack that one a little bit for us? That's one that, that I was very interested in. They looked up one day, and after 5,000 years of predictions, and I mean prediction after prediction after prediction, dating all the way back to Genesis, the third chapter, the seed of a woman would destroy Satan. This book is about good and evil. So here's the seed of a woman coming that will destroy Satan. 5,000 years earlier, well, then all the prophets spoke. Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, one after the other. 5,000 years, fast forward, they look up, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and here he is. Coming out of a virgin, no sex involved, uh, trust me, boys, it's a wild story. <laughs> and you say, whoa, here comes God in flesh. He takes away the sins of the world. Three days later, he re- he removes the fear of physical death by being raised from the dead. And Allah, we end up with uh, removal of sin, not not guilty, and he's going to give us life while we're here, peace of mind and immortality. And the kicker is, unlike Kamala Harris and her uh, health care is going to be free, which they looked at the price tag, it would be about 33 and they said, hmm. I've got eternal health care with Jesus Christ, and it is free. I'm saying it's a pretty good deal. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Well, Phil, All I have to do is love God, love my neighbor, and you say immortality is yours. You know what the kicker is? You two guys and me, we got a six-foot hole waiting on us. Hmm. As surely as I'm talking to the phone, on the phone with y'all, <laughs> there's a six-foot hole coming up, and if there is no God and there is no truth about Jesus coming down and dying, being buried, hmm. when asked, Jesus said, look, the truth has set you free. I am the truth. Yeah, right. I investigated him. I never found one mistake that he made, not one. Hmm. He then turns around, being a mistake-free God, dies because of our mistakes, and, and righteousness is accredited to us if we would trust in him. Hmm. He gets us out from under a law of works where you have to be perfect. And he himself and the bloodshed is the provision for our sins. And on top of that, it wouldn't do any good, guys, for him to remove our sin if he couldn't raise us from the dead. What good would it do? So he's promised life and immortality. America started out on the right track, even with her sins. But these days, 243 years in, Guys, I think we have forgotten the God who brought us. Mm. And I'm trying to remind people, look, why don't we just get back to the old ways, trust in Jesus, be good to our neighbors, love one another. For the life of me, I do not see the downside to it, guys. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, Phil, because like even just here in Chicago, uh, we have listeners of various different political affiliations, religious affiliations. There's a full spectrum of positions and beliefs. And you, you said... If there's one thing I know, it's this. An encounter with the living God is the only hope for mankind. And I feel like 
that is such a crystal clear statement amidst all the the noise of he said she said and like you know you only have to turn on your TV or turn on social networks to see like we we're more and more divided than ever it seems you keep talking about loving your neighbor and I lo- I love that right like the you boiled it down to this love God love others love God love others why sure. why do you think that's so difficult for us to get and why we so often like muddle the message of an encounter with God as the hope for mankind. Why, why is that so tough for us? It's so tough for us because we listen to the evil one who we claim is not even there. We listen to him and the lies he tells us, and it's in unity is not possible. Look, you got texts like Acts 17 where the Apostle Paul was standing on Mars Hill when the Greek Empire was, was uh, still standing, and... He stands upon Mars Hill with those Greeks, and he gave made this statement. From one man, God made every nation of men. Mm. He determines the time set for them, the exact places they should live. God did this so men might reach out and seek him, perhaps find him, though he's not far from each one of us. That statement, from one man, he made all nations. You say, what's your point? My point is... There is no black race, white race, yellow race. That's what they taught me in college. I never realized that we're all, there's just one race on planet Earth. It's called the human race. And we're all together here as humans. And there's no difference, color, ethnic background. We can all be brought together if we just turn to God, put our faith in his son, what he's done for us. For the life of me, boys. Uh, unity is possible. We're all, he'll be our head. We love one another. We help each other as we have need. It's not a government political fix. It, it's a spiritual fix. And that's what we're suffering from in America. That's right. Wow. Phil, thank you so much for taking the thank time you. to share with us about your new book, The right. Theft uh, of America's Soul. You can find out more at duckcommander.com. This has been Phil Robertson, The Theft of America's Soul. This has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hi, friends. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. The show all about taking a deep dive into the stuff that doesn't have easy answers, stuff that is really often tense and has a lot of gray area to it in a world of echo chambers and confirmation bias. We want to create a space for us to dialogue about stuff, even disagree about stuff, to not have easy answers. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the shows are there, plus we're podcasted, so any platform that you want to listen to us, you can find that there as well. And uh, Brian, this this story sort of is emblematic of this idea of messy, without easy answers, complicated, complex, and uh, my guess is that 
People may disagree with the conclusions that we draw on this one, but it's one that I feel like we need to talk about yeah. um, because the Vatican has, has been in the news a lot lately. And uh, this story in particular from CNN um, just sort of caught my attention. It says, Vatican admits to secret rules for children of priests. Mm. The Vatican's revealed that it maintains secret guidelines for priests who fathered children despite their vows of celibacy. One man, Vincent Doyle, whose father was a Catholic priest, told the paper that he was shown the document when he traveled to Rome in search of justice for children of ministers. And uh, right off the bat, just this idea that there are these secret guidelines kind of maintained somewhere in some closed office yeah. um, is problematic for me. It, yeah. It's uh, it's not an easy conversation for sure, uh, and there's probably a number of different directions we could take this. But, I, I mean, I'd love to know just how, how does this story hit you at first blush? The crazy Later on in the story, it says that they founded a group called Coping International, bring together the children of priests. And he told the New York Times the website already had 50,000 users in 175 countries. That's crazy. I mean, it, it for me, it's just over and over again. And I don't know, like one of my worries about doing a show like this is that you and I are going to uh, get uh, uh, kind of jaded by the same stories over and over right, again. Right, right, right. And it's always this like veil of secrecy. Yeah, it's like this veil of secrecy, and that has always been something us Protestants have pointed out in the Catholic Church for years. Like, look, you got these, you know, sexual abuse scandals, these homosexuality scandals. The priest, uh, the Pope, just came out with some stuff two weeks ago, finally right. admitting some sexual abuse claims of nuns against priests and bishops. Right. Uh, but it's not just the Catholic Church, right? You and I, for the last not five by a long or, shot. You and I, for the last five or six weeks, have been talking about all that's going on at Harvest Bible Chapel at Willow Creek, all these things, and it's like there's this common denominator of power and secrecy. Yeah. So one of the things that has struck me the last couple of weeks in the Harvest Bible Chapel thing is the number of people who've come out and basically said, yeah, we kind of knew this was going on, right? Right. But we didn't want to rock the boat. We didn't want to, you know, there was still good fruit going on. Whatever else, and. It, all of these stories for me kind of go under the umbrella of like any time that, that we're like having to keep secrets in order to keep power structures in place and keep things moving along right. because we think it's good, uh, that's a bad thing. Like that's not biblical. When we look at what Jesus did, that's just not the way Jesus functioned nor told us to function. And so when I read stories like this, it just makes me mad. You're like, yet another thing where sin is hidden right? Uh, and people for the image of the church. And then when we read the harvest stuff, where sin is hidden for the image of the church, right, the right, right. stuff, or even smaller church stuff, we all have it in all. It's just crazy, man. Like, if if all of this, if somehow there could be a revival and a reformation within the church in which we say, yeah. we're going to bring things to light and we are going to try to live as biblically as we can, I think that would be the best thing out of all this for the Catholics and the Protestants. Well, and, and either way, no matter how you slice it, the— the safety of the vulnerable will always be more important than the reputation of the powerful. It just yes. it just has to be. And I think that's not to say that there isn't uh, a place for confidentiality. Absolutely. You know, like you you mentioned, you know, uh, Jesus didn't teach us to lead this way. And I, I mean, if I'm just hearing that as as a, a congregant or a listener, I don't know what you mean by that because yeah. because Jesus uh, didn't run organizations the way that a lot of our churches look now. And he didn't talk at all about bylaws or constitutions. He didn't file for a 501c, you know, things that we've done. Yeah. Like sometimes, sometimes I don't understand, uh, how we, we can look at the life of Jesus and superimpose that into what the Western church has become. I don't even necessarily think what it's become, um, is, is bad. I just think sometimes that, that even exchange can be, 
tough to wrap our brains around. And I, and I, and I got to give him credit, too, because later in the story says that under the secret rules, a priest who fathered children was requested to leave the priesthood and assume his responsibility as a parent, dedicating himself exclusively uh, to the child. Yeah. So I appreciate that that is uh, included in that document. But I think what you're touching on, though, is the secrecy component of it. It's this, like, secret in plain sight, though, yeah. right? And not to yep. make a massive jump, but um, when all the Weinstein, the Harvey Weinstein stuff was kind of coming out, that was the that was the general sense. Like, everyone kind of nodded, like, yeah. Yeah, we we sort of knew this was going on. Everyone joked about it. People literally joked about it at award shows. But to your point, I think often people didn't say anything because they didn't want to rock the boat. They knew that it could affect their career negatively. And it is unfortunate to me that some of that similar posturing is seen in the church. Yes. The church is, um, I think, maybe what you were touching on, categorically to look different than the world. Correct. And the irony of like these stories happening in a similar space and time we're like stepping back saying, oh, wow, a lot of the same sentiments in media and Hollywood are being reflected and articulated in the church. And that's not typically a good sign. Yes. So how do we how do we go after those things where, yes, there needs to be confidentiality at times, but uh, these massive sweeping structures of secrets, particularly to maintain uh, systems of power, are problematic. How do you go after that just as a as a person listening to the show right now even? Yeah. Uh, and I guess you bring up a great point. Like Jesus doesn't necessarily speak to our church polity and what's, you know, uh, there is always place for confidentiality. It's organizational. And Jesus, you know, didn't speak to the organization very much. But Jesus did speak to the religious leaders of that time and say, you know, quit looking on the outside, start dealing with the inside. Yeah. Uh, and when I look at a lot of churches and church leaders, whether it be the Catholic church or Protestant churches, whatever, I see a lot of... and publicly, right? The stories, not the guys I'm meeting with on a regular basis, right. but these, these high profile stories, I see a lot of, man, we've got to make sure everything looks like it's all together on the outside and not let anybody know the garbage on the inside. Right, right. And, and man, if I were a part of a church, just to be blunt out there, if you're a part of a church in which you feel like there's this veil of secrecy, I'd probably get out yeah. or I'd at least challenge it at which point they're going to push you out. Right. Uh, because it's just not healthy. And like you said, Jesus said, uh, you Jesus's uh, main push was for the vulnerable, for the least of these. Yeah. Uh, and and if, if our churches aren't set up that way to, to care for the least of these, but we're instead trying to uh, push the least of these away so it doesn't look bad on our, on our churches right, or on our right. own lives, it's just not, it's just not a, a biblical, what, a, what Jesus called us to be as people, as leaders, as churches. Um, so I do believe, you know, you're right. There are part organizationally that it's hard to, to go. It's a little apples and oranges to say Jesus right. to this, but I think character of the leader, that's good, which then moves down to the character of the whole church. Right. If it's about image management and it's about the, you know, the whitewashed tomb and on the outside, whether it be the Catholic church or the right. big mega church or even the small church in town, I think then you're heading down a dangerous path that, that Jesus quite frankly, wouldn't be happy with. Well, and the thing that I do appreciate about Francis, Pope Francis is saying, uh, is there more to be done? Absolutely. Yes. Like he's not saying, "Hey, so you know, we didn't know what was going on, and our bad, and you know, leave us alone." It was. It's really an honest. Okay, yeah. There's still a lot of work to be done, and yep. I think that that shows uh, courage, but also, like you were saying, the character of that leader. And I think that is that is the right thing to go after there. Well, coming up next, uh, Brian found a really fascinating uh, sound clip from Tim Tebow that uh, both of us have been really kind of just encouraged and also challenged by. I think you're really, really. Going to appreciate that. That's coming up next on The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Show all about diving into the mess, the tense, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers. And we'd love to interact with you. You can find us on The Common Good Radio Show on Facebook, also at 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there, and we're podcasted. We'll send carrier pigeons directly to your house <laughs> if you like. Messages and bottles, we'll, whatever, whatever you need, whatever we'll you come need. Hang out on we'll a come Friday. hang out. Right, we got nothing going on. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, we we take deep dives sometimes into like really uh, heavy, heartbreaking conversations. Right. But sometimes we come across stuff that's just inspirational, and it that feels a little like cheeky and cheesy. But I don't know. <laughs> sometimes I just need a little inspiration yeah. in my life. I can tend to be sort of the brooding artist at times where I sort of like knock, you know, these inspirational messages. And then every once in a while it breaks through the cracks and I yes. think, okay, that's, that was pretty good. You came across uh, a particular clip that you found, I did. you found inspiring. I did. So, um, a big sports fan and anyone in sports knows the name Tim Tebow. Uh, he Heisman trophy winner, uh, used to be an NFL quarterback. He's now in the minor leagues for my favorite baseball team, the New York Mets. So right. I love Tim Tebow even more. Uh, but also, he, Tim Tebow, for since he got onto kind of the national stage, has been an outspoken follower of Jesus, and that has caused a lot of people to rip him. Yeah, a lot of people to respect him. Tim Tebow is a very polarizing figure. Right. Uh, you and I also we set up kind of our white whales, right, from Moby Dick as to like the people we want on our show. And Tim Tebow's on my list. Yeah, man. he is. He's yeah. on my list. We bring him up every we day. We are going to search him <laughs> down. If you, if you have a connection to Tim Tebow, Get him. let us know because that you would make Brian's year. You really would. I've tried. We've had Josh try. We're going to keep trying. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Tim Tebow did a press conference at the Mets uh, spring training facility uh, just two days ago. And uh, this clip started floating around Twitter about mm. some stuff he said. And I found it really inspirational. Like you said, uh, I found it biblical. I also found it challenging mm. about... How do you deal with criticism? Because this guy has been a lightning rod for criticism. And right now people are going, why are you trying to play baseball? You you're, may not be that good. You may not ever make the major leagues. It right. seems, seems kind of weird. Someone with all this notoriety and popularity is like, I want to play minor league ball and try mm. to make it and kind of follow my dream. And so with that in mind, Tim Tebow was kind of asked those questions. And I want you to hear what he said. You know, it's it's really trying to keep perspective and um, and not letting other people define you because they sure do want to. And um, shoot, it's you know, I try to encourage young people all the time to not let the world or um, other people outside sources define you because you're always going to have critics and naysayers and people that are going to tell you that you won't, that you can't, that you shouldn't. Most of those people are the people that didn't, that wouldn't, that couldn't. And um, and don't be defined by outside sources. You go after your dreams. Um, succeeding or failing is not making it to the bigs or it's not necessarily fulfilling that. It's not. It's having to not live with regret because I didn't try. And, you know, I just feel for all the young people out there that don't go after something because they're so afraid of failing that you're going to live with a lot more regret than you would have if you tried and you failed. And I'm very passionate about that. Um, and I think the reason that a lot of people don't go after things is because um, how much you will be criticized and what if I fall flat on my face and so fear and doubt and all these things creep in and um, I just don't believe that's the healthiest way to live I don't want to have to live with fear or doubt every day and you know regardless of what everyone here says about me that doesn't define me and I'm so grateful that doesn't define me there's one thing that defines me and that's what God says about me and and besides that I get to go live out my dreams and try to help as many people along the way as possible I, I just really appreciate what he had to say there, um, not because he's a, a celebrity or a baseball player for my favorite team or whatever else, but because 
A, I think it's a wonderful message that if I could have gotten in my life younger, yeah, no kidding. Uh, I really it would have changed the trajectory of my life a little bit. I've mm. told you before, uh, to this day, uh, the fear of failure and the fear of criticism and other people's opinions of me yeah. ha- plays a really big role. Right. And it would be lying if any of us said it never plays any role right. in my life. But you'd, you'd be a robot if exactly, that were right. Exactly. But but the but sometimes in my life I feel like I give it too big of a role. What are people going to think if I do this? Or we I don't know if we take this step we might fail. Right. And his point was this and it's also like the famous Teddy Roosevelt quote, right? Everyone's got up on their wall or other things like uh don't don't be defined by the critic who's on the outside. Right. Every now and then, you know, you, push through the fear and that's how great things get done. And he's saying, listen, I might fail at being a baseball player, right? but I would be a bigger failure if I never tried. And, yep. and I feel like if I could have internalized that earlier in my life, and just to be honest, if I could do a better job of internalizing that now in my life, right? Uh, I think I'd sense a lot greater freedom and mm. be much more willing to try things that I may not be more willing to try now. Yeah, and that's uh, it's always such a tricky discussion for me because uh, sometimes the critics are right. Exactly. Right? You know, so like we, from the perspective of history, when it's you know you know learning about Steve Jobs or some athlete that like you know powered through criticism and became the greatest basketball player of all time, you're like, well, that seems obvious now in hindsight. How you know how do you with clarity? parse through, okay, so this person's a critic, or maybe maybe it's just they're being really negative, and I don't like the way they're being negative, but they're still actually right. You know, like, yep. I wonder if there's a counter to, like, sometimes the wisdom of, like, listening to the people around you, maybe it's about, like, choosing who you listen to. Like, that's really, there's definitely been times in my life where the vast majority was saying one thing, but the guy that's been walking with me, he's like, mm. don't listen to that. That's yeah. not, I know that their voice is louder than mine. Don't listen to that. Th- yep. This is what I see to be true in you. This is what I this is what I see you like digging in on, and I think that's worth digging in on. I think I remember hearing a story years ago that Jim Jim Carrey had told about his his dad, and uh, he had taken a job that his his dad really wasn't excited about, um, but he he just did it because he was really this fear of failure, and he ended up getting fired from that job. He got fired from a job that he he already didn't like doing yeah. anyway, so he took this one thing because it was more secure, or so he thought. And even that ended up failing him. And this is the quote that I've I've referenced a couple of times. It says, you can fail at what you don't want, so you might as well take a chance on doing what you love. That's good. The the idea of failing at what you don't want, that that to me is so compelling because so often we make decisions simply based on, and these aren't insignificant, but we think 401ks, mortgages, yep, all these yep. legitimate buckets that we have to fill. But so often, I think, I talk to people, this is the weird part about our job as we interact with people all the time yep. who are, you know, nearing the end of their career and sometimes the end of their life. And there's some real clarity to, man, I wish I wish I had more courage to try this or to do that. Yep. And it, you know, it usually is like pretty uh, inspiring, selfless stuff. Now, every once in a while, people are like, oh, I really wish I had played the lottery more. Right, and you're like, right, right. well, that's not going to make a quote book anywhere. Yeah. But this idea of like, man, don't live in the fear of, oh, so-and-so thinks I'm foolish or they think I'm yep. like – Find out who your people are that know you, know you well, speak life and truth into you, but also will tell you when you're off the rails. Like that's such a, a hard but important balance to find. For me, and I think it was for you as well, uh, starting this radio show, I don't think we've ever talked about this, but starting mm-hmm. this radio show was was a little bit of this for me because yeah. you know people might know this. You and I have talked openly that we have full-time jobs, right? right? We're right, both pastors. Right. We have families. There are a lot of reasons for us not to do this show. Right. 
And you and I both had to talk to a lot of people and really wrestle with this because it has kind of changed our lives a little bit or not even a little bit, a lot of it. And uh, I remember saying to my wife uh, in this process going, you know, if I don't try this, Mm. I feel like a year from now, three years from now, whatever years from now, I would regret not having tried it. You said that to your wife? I did. I did. This could fail. You and I might be off the air in a month. Who knows? <laughs> That's true. Right? Do you but, know something I don't exactly, know? Exactly. <laughs> but I'd like to be able to look back and be like, man, we made a run at that. We I gave it a shot. We tried that, uh, even if it fails. I think you're 100% right. There are things where it's not about uh, being – um, bold. It's about you're being foolish, and you yeah. need to listen to other people being like, "That's a that's a dumb idea." Let me talk you through yes, this, right? But for some of the bigger stuff, where where you can make fear could really drive it. I've I've had to really try to be intentional to say, "Okay, but what what's the non fearful response to mm. this, and what could be?" And that's why I like you know Tim Tebow's cheeky and a little bit cheesy, but I do appreciate <laughs> him going. Don't be driven by the critic. Yeah. Be driven by what you believe your passion is and your identity in Christ. Totally. That's good, man. That's a good word. Well, coming up next, we're going to interview one of my father's favorite artists of all time. Awesome. He is going to be either happy uh, or angry that I mentioned that, but is one of his all-time favorite artists, a man named Fernando Ortega. We actually are hosting a concert with him in March, March 23rd, and uh, I am really, really looking forward to hearing uh, about his heart and ministry and just sort of his life and career as an artist and songwriter. So that's coming up next on The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, a show all about diving into the mess and the gray and the tense, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers, because I think if we're honest, that's the space that most of us live most of the time. But we also want to take time to also talk talk about the things that we have in common, regardless of your life stage or your faith background. Like, what are the things that we share, I think, in a world that's so divided? We want to, like, lean in to see, okay, what do we have in common? Let's start there, and hopefully we can bring some beauty and healing to the world. We'd love to interact with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there. Um, and you can listen to his podcast that's available on any platform that you can find. But right now... We have a very special guest, and that is Fernando Ortega. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm pretty good. Yeah, thanks. I'm yeah. going to just read your bio, if I may, because it is, it is impressive. It's one of Christian music's most respected artists. His works encompassing modern hymns, liturgical songs, and inspirational and praise and worship favorites with three Gospel Music Association Dove Awards and Billboard Latin Music Award to his credit, Fernando's Christian radio hits include This Good Day, Jesus, King of Angels, and Sleepless Night. His solo discography features 18 projects in a heralded career spanning more than 25 years. That is impressive. Yeah. And i got to be honest, I'm just excited that you're here. We're, uh, we're putting on a concert uh, with you in a little bit, and um, I'll, I'll share some more details about that later. But uh, I am so grateful that you've taken time to be on our show. And a question that I've long since wondered um, because you sort of live in these two worlds, both as like artist and performer, as well as like worship leader. And I'm just curious, how, how do you live in that tension? How, how do you like what sorts of mental shifts do you make between performing on tour and like leading in a, in a local expression? And, and what is that? What is that like for you? Well, I think I'm most comfortable in, when I'm leading worship in a, in a more liturgical setting hmm. where um, where the worship aspect is 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 uh, i'm just kind of uh inserting myself into what's what's already there the liturgy is bigger than than the you know the people carrying out the different parts you know mm. um 
And that's where I've, 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 I'm, I used to be most at home in the Anglican Church, Anglican Church, because, um, you know, I, I think still at heart I'm Anglican, um, but I'm in a more uh, in a more evangelical church now. Uh, but we still they brought me there so I could sort of introduce them to Angli- Anglican liturgy light. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's quite it's quite different. Uh, but but we do have a, a beautiful liturgy at Hope Church here in Albuquerque. I love it. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Um, but you know, I don't when I'm when I'm entertaining. Um, you know, there's a lot of talking and telling stories and introducing songs and and you know making people laugh and everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or I try. <laughs> right. Sometimes yeah. it doesn't work. But you know, at church, I just don't. I don't really talk unless I have to transition from a song into the confession of sin or the assurance of pardon or whatever. You know. Right. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I've always wondered for someone like you as a as an artist and as a performer, do you enjoy more? the craft of writing and, and recording, or do you enjoy more the, the part of performing? And I know it's probably a little bit of both, but which way do you tend? More performing um, than writing, but uh, just um, in the beginning of January, I, I got to write with um, Audrey Assad. No kidding. We, we wrote a song together uh, that's about me, and it's called Bread of Life, and it's not released yet, but I just... I found working with her just incredible and and so much fun, and um, now I'm in the process of recording the song here at my house and then out in California as well. Wow! And um, I'm I'm enjoying both both parts of that. I'll tell you, that's outstanding. Okay, so here's the question that's been burning in my mind for a while. Brian and I are both pastors, and one of the things that I found uh, in preaching ministry is that. If you ever use an illustration more than once, like someone's going to call you on it, like someone's going to catch you and say, you've already used that one. But in your profession, particularly in touring, it's almost the opposite, right? Like people always want to hear their favorite song, like, I'll oh, play that favorite one again. How, how do you distinguish or how do you decipher like when to play what people want versus like introducing new material? Because you're an artist, you're a craftsman, so you're wanting to... I imagine like workshop these these new ideas and these new compositions. How how do you balance that? And like, what's the thought process behind just singing what people maybe like start chanting for versus like, oh, I, I have this new stuff that better reflects where I'm at right now. How, how do you find that balance? Well, I, I would say that if, if something feels starts to feel really old to me when I'm singing it, if I, it's like my mind wanders and I yeah. sing the song and I go, oh, I guess I just sang that song. <laughs> um, trying, to, trying to get a new one, you know, trying to put something else in there. I, I always want to, I want to feel what I sing and, and and you know have it move me as I sing it. Um, so that's the biggest one. People yell that. out. I mean, there's one. You know, "Give Me Jesus" is a song I recorded years ago, and yep. people. I just played the other night in Columbus, Ohio, and people were screaming out. <laughs> it's a good question for them, right? Yeah, yeah right. That's yeah. good. So, <laughs> yeah. so you're an artist, but you you know you also want to share Christ with people. So uh, through your music, uh, so I'm curious, how do you keep the focus on Christ while you perform? What does that look like in a Fernando Ortega show? Huh. I mean, part of that is is going to be uh, my songs are, are are mostly pretty serious in nature. Okay, and I find that if I if I just String them all together, it can get a little bit somber in the concert setting. Mm. So I think I to, to keep people's atten- people's attention on the subject, which is God or Christ. Um, sometimes I 
I move away from it and, and tell a funny story, I guess. Right. So that, so that the song um, or the prayer, whatever, has has a a bigger impact. I don't know. That that's kind of a weird way to, that's good. to answer what you're saying, but no, that absolutely makes sense. Things. So, yeah. so you'll you'll be performing out here on uh, March 23rd at Calvary Church in Orland Park, and I'll, I'll give the rest of the details in a second. But um, I also read that you're playing just you and your cellist. Um, will that be a more intimate show than people maybe are used to? What what will kind of be like the the tone and vibe of of that particular show on on March 23rd? Yeah, I mean, I don't travel with a band that much anymore, just because it's very expensive people right. don't want to pay pay all that money to <laughs> yeah. fly people around and all that right so most of my shows these days are with a cello player and um so yeah it's it's, it's an intimate thing um but it's 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 i think it's how people most most people experience me these days you know i i just played a string of shows like i said in columbus ohio and uh it was just me and the piano and i haven't done that in a while mm. and it, very lonely out there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. you know, with the cello, there's all these there's all these instrumental lines that happen, and you can uh, rely on that to to lift a song to a different place. Here, it was just me and the and the piano, and I I don't know. It was fun, but it was a, a exhausting, I guess. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm Expensive sure. kind of energy, you know. So yeah, the cellist that's coming with me is Jeremy Ward, and he. He uh, lives in Chicago. He's in, he's a professor of early music at Wheaton College. Oh, that's great. Yeah, he's a really terrific musician. That's great. So uh, <coughs> as we close up here, there's always a question I, I want to ask other uh, artists is, um, you're sitting at home and you're, you're by yourself and you're listening to music. Who are one or two of currently your favorite people to listen to? I think people would be fascinated to know who Fernando Ortega likes to listen to. Well, I just found this girl, Madison. Oh my gosh! Now I'm going to mess up. <laughs> oh, you see, I, I was on Facebook and I found Madison Cunningham is her name, hmm. and uh, she's the the daughter of a pastor. She's I think she's only 22 years old, and she was in this Porter's Gate um, uh, event that happens in Nashville. This was the second time it happened in January. That's when when I wrote with Audrey Assad, but Josh Garrels, Audrey Assad, Sarah Groves, um, and then this girl Madison Cunningham. She's just an incredible singer and and, uh, and writer as well. But around here, I listen to uh, we listen to Sarah Jerose. I have a ten year old daughter, and she's really into music. So so we listen to Sarah Jerose a lot. We've been sometimes Bruno Mars. Only <laughs> yeah, I don't really listen to very much of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> The man can sing. It's funny how how uh, aware I am at at a right age of almost sixty two uh, of of pop culture just because of of my kid. You know? So true. I say that's impressive. That's imp- well, sir. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm looking forward to uh, to meeting and hanging out with you on March 23rd. This has been Fernando Tego. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Of course, yeah. Thank you, guys. The concert will be on March 23rd at Calvary Church in Orland Park. Doors open at 6. Concert starts at 7. Tickets are on sale right now at 1160hope.com. You can click the uh, Fernando Ortego banner that's at the top of the page. Tickets are 17 bucks, but VIP tickets are $39. VIP ticket holders will receive premium seating and a meet-and-greet with Fernando 
uh, Fernando after the show. You can find Fernando at FernandoOrtega.com, and his Twitter is maybe my favorite Twitter handle of all time. You can find him on Twitter at FernDiggity. That is a real Twitter handle. You can find him at FernDiggity on Twitter. <laughs> Coming up next, we like to wrap up the show every day just sharing some of the insanity that we found online because, you know, if it's on the Internet, it must be true. So that's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, friends. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And that, that music can mean only one thing. Only one thing. We're landing the plane. We like to wrap up the show. Every show is a little different. You know, it's sort of like uh, it's got its own unique kind of life. And yeah. We like to land the plane, though, by diving into some craziness that we found on the internet. And uh, I'm I'm amazed that the internet never disappoints. It, like It's never that hard <laughs> to find craziness each and every day that happens somewhere in the world. And uh, right, right now we're rifling through a pile of about 40 different stories. So we're going to pick a couple of our favorites. It is true, though. Like every time we do this, I'm always like, well, there can't be more crazy stories tomorrow. <laughs> right. And then away they come. And then you're like, well, we have more for the next day. <laughs> there always is. There it's, always is. I, I'm, I'm losing my faith in humanity with each one of these. <laughs> oh, see, I'm gaining it. That's... <laughs> <laughs> I've also learned don't move to Florida. That's right. Florida, <laughs> Florida if you're listening, we're so sorry. Okay, this one's out of Montana. I don't know that we've ever done a Montana one. Mm. Uh, headline reads, Petitioners want to sell Montana to Canada for $1 trillion. <laughs> $1 trillion. <laughs> Petitioners at change.org have an idea to help the United States pay off its $22 trillion debt. And their suggestion is sell Montana. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got to admire their moxie. That's a, that's a unique take. Good for them. Yeah. I've never been to Montana, but, you know, I feel like the Canadians could do a good job with it. Yeah, I trust the Canadians. <laughs> For half that money, we'll just let them rent Montana. And then... <laughs> right. Would they be interested like, in a lease program? Or... <laughs> rent to buy. <laughs> All right, I'm going to Florida. All right. I'm in. Woman made, quote, stupid joke about bomb on a flight. Oh, gosh. This can't be good. I tell my kids every time we fly, which isn't often. Do not say anything dumb. Like, you just can't. Remember as a youth pastor, if you ever flew with your right, kid? Right, right. I had that one kid. You're like, I know he's going to make the joke. I know, And I would always pull him aside and be like, I'm sending you home to your parents <laughs> if you can't get on this flight. See, but having an adult tell me don't say something dumb only made me want to say something dumb but more. But it, it meant I could call his parents afterwards. Well, anyway, <laughs> this woman was arrested after making a stupid, jo- stupid joke about a bomb on an Air Canada flight departing Fort Lauderdale International Airport. Uh, she's Canadian. Maybe she's from Montana. Oh, boy. (laughs) She was boarding the Montreal-bound flight Tuesday with her boyfriend when a flight attendant noticed a black roller bag that was stuck in an overhead bin. The flight attendant took the bag out and started asking passengers who it belonged to. You know what's happened next. She said, there's a bomb in it. Her boyfriend told her not to joke around. The flight attendant reported the incident to the captain. And this is a big deal. The plane was evacuated and the entire terminal was closed. Uh, she was. She claimed it was just a stupid joke. She was booked in the jail on five thousand dollar bond and faces a charge of making a false report of a bomb. Don't do that, people. <laughs> just a good PSA. Just a good reminder in Don't case you needed <laughs> need a refresher. All right, let's go to Texas. Toasters may expose you to more pollution than a busy intersection. So the, the article starts. What has the greatest influence on air pollution since sliced bread? Ha! Toast. <laughs> Sliced bread. I and, see what they did there. Yeah, it's very punny. Uh, a new study from the University of Texas at Austin warns that toasters, candles, and other household smoke makers expose people to more air pollution than standing in a busy intersection. Whoa. I had never even considered that. Uh, I'm probably not going to stop using my toaster, though. <laughs> not going to lie. We have a toaster and a toaster oven in my house. My wife and I couldn't agree. <laughs> 
So we just got both. It's funny. We had both when we were first married, and then we I, – I just remember our toaster oven catching fire one day. <laughs> and you're like, well, no longer have time, a toaster Time oven. to get rid of that. <laughs> yep. No longer have a toaster oven. All right. This one's in Michigan. Weightlifter moves SUV to help rescue pin driver after rollover crash. Oh. This guy heard a big, spa- big smash about 4.30 p.m. and ran outside to see what caused it. Uh, the professional weightlifter saw plastic glass and sections of bumper strewn across the roadway. A crumpled black Jeep Cherokee lay on its roof in the melting snow. After calling 911, this man, the 29-year-old, and a co-worker approached the car. A 44-year-old woman was injured but conscious in the, uh, in the vehicle. The guy said he turned his attention to the Jeep. About four people helped, and they basically lifted it off. Wow. Belcher is used to moving heavy weight. It says he squatted 950 pounds, has bench pressed 530, and deadlifted 800 pounds in a competition. So the thing is this. If you're going to flip your car, do it in front of the house. Yeah, yeah, no a, kidding. a weightlifter. I'm listening to those numbers, though. I'm like, I could lift that. No, right? Yeah, I think so. That's, maybe, maybe we'll have a uh, live there's, deadlift competition one no- of these days. <laughs> I notice I didn't say ninety five pounds. I didn't oh say, nine. Uh, oh, okay, I got you. All right, this one's out of Colorado. This is the most I've laughed out loud reading one of these oh, in, in a while. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm gonna laugh again just reading it. <laughs> Colorado <laughs> woman pens breakup note on foot before amputation. <laughs> a Colorado woman who had part of her leg amputated in the fall after spending years in agonizing pain said she penned a breakup note to her limb before undergoing the two point five hour surgery. Quote. It's not me. It's you. Read one message. <laughs> now, obviously, like having to lose a, that's tragic. That's really, really sad. I really appreciate though people in, in the midst of really heartbreaking circumstances, like still keeping like, a good sense of humor about it all. It's not me. It's you. She said before the foot was amputated. That's that's brilliant. <laughs> that is funny. I I'm in Florida all all week here, all yeah. day here. We yeah, go no Florida kidding. again. Okay. No one wants to see that. Man says somebody was watching him through his Nest camera. So a Kissimmee man said oh, he was boy. going through his morning routine when he walked out of the apartment bathroom and realized his security camera was on, his Nest security camera. He then heard a voice that he did not recognize. The light came on and caught my attention. I believe he said no one wants to see that. <laughs> he had an accent and proceeded to do some shuffling of the microphone. When I left the bedroom, some music or audio came on. Wow. He couldn't turn the app off, and he realized somebody else was controlling oh, his Nest gosh. app within his house, and he couldn't get it uh, He couldn't get it off. So could you imagine that? You come out, and you've got, you think you've got this security app on your phone, and all of a sudden someone starts talking nope. to you through it. That's kind of my nightmare, to be honest. Like, I've seen too many, like, Big sci-fi, brother. futuristic, like the robots are taking over the world. Yep. That would be, that'd be terrifying. Brother is watching. This one's kind of a feel-good. It's out of Australia. Late father's lucky numbers win lottery prize for family. An Australian man's lucky numbers scored uh, more than $200,000 lottery jackpot for his family two years after his death. Uh, A spokesman for the lottery syndicate, which is composed of 11 family members, said the group has been using her late father's lucky lottery numbers. And uh, two years after his passing, um, they came up. And they want a bunch of money, and it's helping like cover a bunch of really important bills and stuff that they have. That's, that's like awesome. a really feel good story, right? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, Jack Graham would say that's angels. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's lottery angels. <laughs> lottery angels. That's a nice story. Well, I'm going to end with an obvious one. You ready? California. Sure. Here's the title. Want to live longer? Start exercising more. Study oh, says. Wow. <laughs> Those who believe that age is just a number may be right, according to a new study that suggests. Exercise performance may be a better predictor of how long you'll live 
than your age is. Using data from exercise stress tests, researchers at the Cleveland Clinic developed a method to calculate someone's physiological age based on how their heart responds during and after exercising. Do you know one of the things they found? I heard this on on TV, too. Uh, If you, after the age of 40, can do 40 uh, push-ups, your heart is probably... um, healthy and you'll live 10 years longer than somebody who can't do 40 push-ups. Okay. I remember there was a, uh, a girl in high school I wanted to date and I asked her father's permission. And, uh, he said, you can date my daughter when you can do more push-ups than me. Uh, <laughs> little did I know <laughs> his, his number was more like 120 or something ridiculous, but I, I trained for a long time to be able to, ah. I really, truly did. I really, truly did. And, uh, he still told me no. <laughs> if, you, if you'd like to date Rachel, you first must date Leah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was sort of how that went. I'll I'll, uh, I'll wrap up with this. Tesla's new dog mode will keep your pup cool while you're out in the car. Oh, that's nice. Thanks, Tesla, for keeping our pups cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been a good day. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.